Welcome to We Are What We Buy with Dr. Michael Solomon. We'll take a deep dive to look at the patterns, habits, brands, and benefits that drive your customers to buy. The tips and concepts you'll hear on the program will have you standing head and shoulders above your competition. Now here's your host, Dr. Michael Solomon. So today we're talking about the importance of design and the importance of brand identity. You know, the basic idea that people don't buy things because of what they do, they buy them because of what they mean. And in order to have those meanings, we have to have experts who create those meanings and who let, let us know what those meanings are. So uh, my first guest today is, is an expert in that area, and I'm delighted to have her on board. I'll, let me tell you a little bit about her. Uh, her name is Margaret Malloy, and Margaret is the Global Chief Marketing Officer at the leading branding firm of Siegel and Gale. Uh, she's responsible for all marketing, communications, and business development initiatives globally for the company. Um, as you will very quickly tell, she is a native of Ireland, and she is regarded as one of the most influential global marketing leaders. She consistently appears on top CMO lists, and she has been published in places like the Harvard Business Review and Fast Company, and she also contributes to LinkedIn and Forbes. So, uh, Margaret, a big Irish hello to you. Hello, Michael, and thrilled to be on and have the opportunity to spend some time with your listeners. Well, thanks so much. And um, uh, your your company, Siegel and Gale, is uh, uh, works with with a lot of of clients. And I I note that this is actually your fiftieth anniversary. So. Uh, you've you've seen a lot of changes o- over the years. Uh, you've worked with a lot of clients on on branding. Uh, what is the essence today? You know, how would you sum things up in terms of how uh, firms like yours are thinking about branding and the customer experience? Thank you, Michael, and thank you for the congrats on the anniversary. I should preface it by saying I haven't personally been here for fifty years, <laughs> but um, I, I do think back and reflect on the trends as we do as a team. And I would say that the one point that's vitally important to us is at Siegel & Gale, our agency was founded with a very clear point of view. That is, that simple is smart. It is fundamental to everything we deliver to our clients, that ethos of simplicity. From a macro perspective, I'd highlight a couple of trends. The first trend in the branding realm is a shift from words and pictures to holistic customer experiences. A brand is now measured by the summation of all its touch points. It's no longer merely about the logo and the catchphrase or the brand tagline. The second trend I observe is the resurgence of interest in purpose. Because of social media, consumers are savvier than ever before. Consequently, brands must articulate a compelling purpose and demonstrate that very genuinely by living the purpose. I think when we really step back, it seems to us that ultimately the goal for a brand is to build a movement, not a monument. Now, what I mean by that is brands want to become essential in the lives of their consumers and want the consumers to evangelize them. It's no longer the historical mantra of broadcasting a tightly scripted view of the brand. Today, it's about creating brand evangelists among your constituents. Yeah, so that's a, those are very powerful points. And, you know, it, I, I, what I hear you saying is that, that brands are more important than ever. They, they play such a key role in our lives. Uh, you know, the, the name of my show is uh, We Are What We Buy. So I, I certainly agree with that. And, and, and you made the comment that, that uh, things are much more holistic today. So in a sense, people are living the brands that they consume. The, br- the brands are, they're much more than, than function. I think you would agree with that. 
And, and, and how does that work? I mean, are, are people, are consumers embracing this idea? Are they looking for brands that will help them to live better? Or are brands having to chase them down and convince them of that? I, from my perspective, in a world of clutter, where there are more products than any of us need in every single category, from shampoo to food and beyond. Brands are way more important than ever before because they serve that purpose of helping people make choices. Now, what informs that choice depends on the consumer. But in my assessment, increasingly, brand purpose is integral to that. So when you can be choiceful in a particular category, millennials started this and increasingly it's becoming more mainstream. Consumers want to know what are the values of the brand and that helps inform their selection, ultimately purchase and ideally loyalty to that brand. Yeah, so, um, you know, I I refer to that as brand genealogy. I I find uh, certainly with my students, uh, they they don't want to know just, you know, the, the corporate hype. They want to know who made the brand, what what were the working conditions, you know, what are they giving back and and all of that. So so really brands ironically are more important than ever, even though sometimes people dismiss them as just, you know, we have too much commercialization and people are looking for authenticity, yet they're looking for authenticity from the corporate world. Is it would you agree with that? I think they're looking for it everywhere. What's even more important than their voyage to discover it is their ability to validate or negate promises of authenticity. So it's easy for a company to make a misstep and it's very costly. So the burden on brands is to provide that clarity of purpose And as we mentioned at the onset, to exhibit the behaviors that are consistent with that purpose at every customer interaction. Otherwise, they get called out, frankly, for uh, deviating from keeping promises. Yeah, and I think, well, if I can use a cliche, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to uh, talk the talk, you better walk the walk. And so, Really, we have a lot of brands, I think, that are poisoning the well, in a sense, because they're making a lot of promises, for example, greenwashing, where they're making promises about what they will do for the environment, and then people get very disillusioned when they find that's that's not necessarily the case. So, you know, a few bad apples can really uh, make things, make like life difficult for, for people in your business. Um, and, and it's ironic, you know, you use this word simplicity and, and, you know, let's talk a bit about that. I know that's important to you. Uh, you know, we're, people are working harder and harder to create meanings for brands. And yet, ironically, you seem to be advocating going in the other direction that is stripping away a lot of these excess meanings and focusing on a more simple kind of connection. Can you, can you tell us a bit more about that philosophy? Certainly, and I think it's important to define the term. For us at Siegel and Gale, simplicity exists at the intersection of two components, clarity and surprise. So simplicity brings clarity instead of confusion, productivity instead of paralysis, and ultimately satisfaction for the consumer. But clarity alone is not enough, because if a brand is clear, it risks being boring. There has to be that element of surprise. In other words, a brand must create that aha moment of discovery for a consumer in terms of the experiences, anticipating consumers' needs. So simplicity is not a synonym of clarity. It's that intersection of clarity and surprise. And the judgment is in what to strip away, what is superfluous versus what is essential in every aspect of the brand, from the visual identity components to the verbal identity to the elements that are choreographed in the customer experience. And the genius isn't in willy-nilly stripping away, it's that mindful elimination of the superfluous to allow the essential to radiate. 
Can, can you help me uh, put this in a more concrete context? Um, uh, I, maybe I'm putting you on the spot. I hope not. But it, can you give us an example of a brand, either a brand you work with or, or not, uh, that exemplifies this simplicity approach that you're advocating? What, what does it mean to be simple in this context? So I would highlight Netflix as a brand that understands simplicity. They, if you look and research their business model, they were brutal, for example, in eliminating the DVD delivery mechanism because they made the choice to go streaming very early in their business model. And that clarity of we're about streaming versus video, you know, DVD delivery was a very bold choice in the beginning. Enter their uh, platform today and they do a very good job of essentially cultivating an understanding of the user's preferences and their pricing models are quite simple. How about from the, from the customer's perspective? You know, we hear a, a tremendous amount of talk today about the customer experience as if this is suddenly an, a new thing. <laughs> I mean, it's always been important, but uh, we have conferences devoted to the customer experience and the customer journey and so on. And, and of course, a lot of that is focused on, on eliminating friction and in the interaction between the customer and the brand, you know, pain points or uh, places where things just aren't working as well. Um, is, is that a part of simplicity, just making it easy to, to use the brand? Uh, am I understanding that correctly? Absolutely, Michael, you're spot on because it doesn't stop, as I indicated earlier, with the narrative or the brand identity. It's every touch point. And in fact, we conduct a study on brands and we get to a place of understanding how customers appreciate simplicity and how much they reward brands who provide simpler experiences. So in essence, Customers appreciate brands that make their lives easier and are simple to engage with. And often, they are willing to actually pay a premium for simplicity. So when asked, our respondents, which comprised about 10,000 consumers across eight countries globally, provided the following empirical support for simplicity. 55% of people indicated that they are willing to pay more for simpler experiences. They also raised their hands vis-a-vis -vis loyalty. 64% of people indicated they are more likely to recommend a brand that delivers simple experiences. And interestingly enough, there's a fascinating connection between customers anointing a brand as simple and Wall Street rewarding it as well. Specifically, we took a portfolio of the simplest global brands and we compared that basket of 10 stocks, if you will, to the major indices. And consistently over the years of the study, the stocks that were in the top performing simplest brands significantly outperformed the major indices. So while some might say, it's intuitive to offer simple experiences, and I would certainly support that. Now, on the back of this study, which we've conducted for almost a decade, it's beyond just intuitive. It's actually a good business decision to simplify the customer experience. Yeah, that's a very, that's a very powerful argument uh, that there's actually ROI there in making our lives easier and solving our, our problems. Um, what what would you say are some of the pain points? You know, what what when you when you talk to brands, what are what are one or two of the things that they do that make their brands, if I might say, unsimple? Because I'm not sure if complex is exactly accurate here, but we know that they're not simple in that they're not easy to interact with. Certainly. So I'll highlight a few points. One is for companies that have a multi-product portfolio. They often make it very challenging for the consumer to navigate that portfolio. So which version of the phone should I purchase? Or 
um, which credit card is the best option based on my purchase requirements and lifestyle. So that's around product portfolio and helping customers navigate that. So sometimes that architecture can be very complex. Second um, opportunity for failure is when there is a dissonance between what the market essentially messages are perpetuated by the marketing department and when the consumer actually touches a brand, be it in a retail setting or be it in a call center or other service environment. So plainly spoken, client goes to a retail outlet of a brand and the product is priced differently or the colors aren't available or the stocks aren't there or there's a disconnect between the online and the uh, retail experience. Uh, This is really... uh very valuable and you know it, it kind of goes against the grain because it reminds us that some of the some of the most impactful things we can do with customers is is to just keep it simple right and not not overthink it in that sense and be consistent and 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 of course live up to expectations which is also what I hear you saying uh, not to to delight people and not disappoint them so uh, I, I really thank you so much for this, Margaret. Uh, thank you for taking the time. I know you're a very busy lady, but um, this has been very helpful. So thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you, Michael, and all the best to your listeners. And you're listening to We Are What We Buy. I'm Dr. Michael Solomon, and we're back in a moment with another guest to talk about the importance of brand design. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Book international speaker and renowned author Dr. Michael Solomon for your event today. Michael's presentations reveal cutting-edge trends in advertising and marketing, branding, consumer behavior, and social media. He captivates audiences with the insights he unveils during his interactive keynotes and seminars. Michael has spoken to Fortune 500 companies, top advertising agencies, associations, and branches of government on five continents and has received rave reviews. Book Michael today at michaelsolomon.com. Marketers, Tear Down These Walls, Liberating the Postmodern Consumer by Dr. Michael Solomon is a revolutionary book that explores the psychology of the consumer in today's changing times. The book is packed with information and tools you need to create winning marketing strategies for a complex marketplace. Michael encourages readers to move out of the box, to think like contemporary consumers, and do things differently. This is a reader's favorite. Order today at Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to We Are What We Buy. To reach Dr. Michael Solomon or his guest on today's program, please send an email to michael at michaelsolomon.com. Now back to We Are What We Buy. So we're talking today about the importance of design and the idea that people don't buy products just because of what they do. They buy them because of what they mean. And so that means design counts for a lot. And so we're, we're talking to some experts on design and experts on how design can be used to, to delight consumers and, of course, to please brands as well who are uh, find their success because they have a superior design. So right now I'm really happy to be talking with Aaron Keller and Aaron is the co-author of a book called The Physics of Brand and we'll be getting into that interesting title a bit more. And he's also the co-founder of Capsule, which is a special projects consulting firm in Minneapolis. Uh, he's worked with a lot of interesting companies, um, including Patagonia, Target, Cody Beauty, Schwinn, and, and a number of other brands. So, uh, uh, Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Michael. Yeah, it's it's my pleasure. And and let's let's just start with a little commercial for Capsule. Um, uh, your website says that that Capsule is a design firm, and it says, I quote. 
We design moments to create a brand experience. So can you elaborate a little bit on that? How do moments create a brand experience? That's a very good start, yes. Um, so if you think about life and memories and your lifetime, you have you know, a certain number of brands that come into your life. Uh, and when you look at those and when you've engaged with them, first of all, you have to remember them. Second of all, they have to mean something to you. And that usually is delivered in a particular moment. You can look back on it and say, you know, the first moment I entered into a McDonald's or I went to Target or I jumped in the, in the back of an Uber that has a very big contribution to memory. Those are moments, first moment, but then there's also the, just the aggregation of the number of moments and the time you spend with a brand that contribute to the memories and the meaning that is in that brand, right? And brands don't exist if they don't exist in your memory, and they aren't valuable to you if they don't have meaning to you, in, right? Um, who you are and, and what you mean to other people. So um, these moments aggregate and what we like to think is that we design those moments for brands helping them think in that way so they have those moments of interaction and optimize them as much as possible and then when they get them right don't mess with them right don't change them in such a way that that makes people run away from them um, or adapt to culture as culture changes around them because we're in an obviously a very big state of change right now as a culture and with the word disruption you know overused all over the place so that's the, the essence of it. Now, it manifests in the form of websites and packages and displays and retail environments um, and all kinds of other things. But in, the, in essence, what it is, is it distills down to a moment, a moment in time when someone interacts with you or your brand or your product. So, I, and I should tell our listeners, speaking of moments, if you hear some noisy moments, it's because Aaron is uh, outside at uh, New York Fashion Week, and so I managed to grab him for this conversation, uh, and that explains some of those noisy moments you might hear in the background. But, uh, but more generally, uh, when you so when you talk about moments, uh, that sounds a bit like what we might call touch points with the brand. Is that is it basically yeah. touch points? Every point of contact that you have with the brand. Is that yeah, 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 yeah. Touch points are are good. Um, equivalence to a certain degree and touch points for a brand is that that's theirs. A moment is, you know, and a moment in memory is mine as a consumer as a, or as a human being. Right. Um, and so thinking about it in their terms, putting it in their world and saying, I want to do everything I can to understand this person or this audience so I can design these moments for them. Um, it kind of, it, it stretches you beyond your own world of being a brand owner, being a marketer, being someone that's trying to put something out in the marketplace and create touch points, it says it impacts everything. And at that moment, right, can be an impact from sound, from sight, from sense of touch or taste. All of these things can contribute. And generally speaking, the more of the senses you involve, the better chance you have of making a memory, right? Um, and that's why when you put them all together, you get experiences. Yeah, so that's uh, music to my ears. I've, I've talked a lot on other shows about sensory marketing, about the importance of going beyond the visual. But, uh, you know, for a lot of people who, who maybe don't think about this as much, they might say, well, what do, you, what do you mean by this? I mean, you know, I stand in the store and I look at the package. Well, I guess that's a moment. You know, that's a visual moment where the, the package is a certain color. Maybe it's a certain shape. But what you're saying is that, moments are created from a lot of other sources perhaps that people don't think about as much is that is that fair to say and can you give any examples in your work of you know how you've engineered moments that go beyond the traditional moments of uh, say a package shape or something like that yeah yeah I can give you one one that's not mine or not one that we've touched but one that we use as a great example of moments uh, and then I can give you one that's one we have the uh, the first one is the one I use a lot and I use in the book is uh, called the Uber moment, the exiting moment. Um, so if you've got an Uber and the first time you do an Uber, you get out or Lyft uh, and you kind of have this thing where you're pretending like, wait a minute, did I forget to do something? Um, and that what's essentially happening there is Uber is rewriting your memory. When you exit a vehicle that's delivered you somewhere, usually you have to sit in the back, right? And, that, and then you do Uber for you know, another 10 trips and then you go back to a cab and that 90 seconds it takes you, and literally, it's not that much more than 90 seconds to work out the details 
on what you're going to give as a tip and swipe your card or whatever else, right? It's the most miserable 90 seconds of your life. And you feel like a total, um, I don't know, just a, just a not a nice person for, you know, thinking this is a miserable thing to do. But what's happened is they know that the human behavior, the natural human behavior is when you get somewhere, you want to get to the next part of your journey. You want to be on your way. You don't want to sit in the back and wait and work through the card and all the other stuff. So that is a moment that Uber and Lyft rewrote um, and the cabs until they figure that out, they're never going to be able to compete um, because that contributes and exiting moments, right? The, the, the memory uh, of, a, of an exit is more valuable than the entering moment of, of an experience. So that's the exiting moment that cabs have that Uber just rewrote. And now you have to, as a cab, you're a cab company, try to figure out how to way to compete with that, right? And do it better, which is almost impossible, I think perhaps someday. So that's a one version of a moment. Another version of a moment um, that we've inter- we've done a lot of study around is around hang tags and, and garments, hang tags across all products, right? And you look at it and you say, well, no one reads a hang tag. It's the first reaction. So small, is it really important? Well, it has the price on it, but actually everybody reads a hang tag. Every garment you've ever purchased, you've more than likely read the price of a hang tag. So it's a mass media moment, but it's also you know, uh, very nascent, essentially. It's, it's barely even there. But you wonder what else is there. If you're buying a very, very expensive thing, more than likely you're spending some significant time with an hang tag to find out what's inside that garment, right? Um, and it can be a moment for pause where you just look at it and move on, or you can actually spend some time with them, have some content, and actually engage people because everybody goes through that moment. But rarely do marketers really think about it. Um, our client Patagonia has, and they've designed an amazing hang tag with us. Um, the one that I uh, admire from afar is Lululemon. They've done a nice job, though I think they've gone backwards on their hang tags recently. Um, but they have in the past done a really good job of considering that moment of pause when someone looks at a hang tag. So there are moments everywhere. Um, it's a matter of knowing which ones are your most valuable ones and then designing them to be the most interesting. And it isn't what you'd typically expect, right? Um, it's often outside your purview because it's hard to see. So actually, these, a lot of these moments, you know, if we take your, your Uber example, which I really like, and I, you know, I would call that a script that you have to rewrite your services script in, uh, to interact with the taxi again. I think that's great. Uh, really, sometimes the moment is about making it not into a moment, right? Making it frictionless so that you yep. don't think about it as opposed to having to remember that you, that you have to leave the cabbie a tip. Is that, is that accurate? Some, sometimes. Yeah, right, right. Moments. Yeah, no, and it, it doesn't have to be, you know, friction or not, right? You don't necessarily want to make people think too hard about it. You want to remove as much uh, friction as possible and actually make it as intuitive as possible. So you might not necessarily find that people spend more time with your hang tag, but they're more engaged with your hang tag. Or in the case of Uber, obviously removing that friction of exiting out of a car, it's just a wonderful thing for, for consumers. And there's no way you can, how do you beat that, right? How do you as a cab figure out a way around that? Um, so yeah, that's, you're, you're definitely on the right track for thinking about yeah. those moments and what you can add to them and how they can be more intuitive for people. Yeah, and it, you know, I think it's a good reminder that a lot of the reasons that we form some kind of an, an emotional response after we interact with a product or service, you know, we feel good or bad afterwards, uh, we can't necessarily put our finger on why. So it's, it might be these tiny moments that we can't identify after the fact, but we know that for some reason I feel better in that Uber than I do in a taxi. So you're, you're clearly dipping into, uh, into psychology to work with your clients, which is music to my ears uh, as a psychologist. But another thing that intrigues me about what you do is you, you seem to be borrowing from another discipline that's less obvious, and that is physics. Your, your book is entitled The Physics of Brand. So what, what do you mean by the physics of brand? Well, um, as we started, and my co-author, Dan Wallace, one of my co-authors, um, and I had been spending a lot of time talking about brand theory uh, and all the different methodologies and all the different definitions of what a brand is. Um, and as we dug further, we both have a fascination with physics and like to talk about physics, but we're not trained physicists by any stretch. Um, as we talked about it, we're like, well, maybe it, you know, we really should go all the way back 
go all the way back to the base science, the science of nature and the science of, of everything, which is physics, and see what we find looking at brands through the lens of physics. And so we started exploring that on our own, like clumsy kids, and then met a woman by the name of Renee Marino, my third co-author, who actually has a background in physics. When she heard our story, uh, she said, yeah, I mean, physics has been applied to Wall Street um, and hedge funds for decades. Uh, so it definitely makes sense you could apply it to brands. Um, so we started exploring the possibility, what does that mean? And how do you do that? And so we formed these three models, which you would see in the book, uh, Jacob's Ladder and Space and Time as the two primary models, um, and developed out what does it mean for brands to look at themselves through these models. Uh, so that's what we did. And we, we did the math to essentially tie what, are, what you see as experiences, and those are what contribute to the value of brands um, and create what you find valuable in your life, the experiences you have. So, so physics is very abstract, but let's bring it down to earth in the, in the time that we have left. Um, maybe I'll put you on the spot here, may, maybe not. Um, can you tell our listeners, you know, can you think of a concrete example where you have two brands that are functionally pretty similar, but one wins the day because of the design? I would say right now we have experienced probably the most iconic version of that and the one that has raised up the world of design, which is Apple. Um, you don't have to look back too far. And it was really almost 18 years ago, I was in a meeting with a client out of Silicon Valley. Um, they were basically a hardware device manufacturer, routers and modems, and we were doing research for them and presented our research. We said, you should look to Apple and how they design products for the home, for the experience, right? And look at the, how they use design, generally speaking. And they looked at me and they said, Apple is pretty much irrelevant in this town. And, and I kind of, I didn't have an answer, right? It was, and at that time they were, um, they were, they were getting picked on by everybody. Um, and, but we talked about, and this was predicted by a number of people in the design field, that there was a point that it was going to get where the functionality um, was going to get to parity and you're going to need something else. And it had to be, um, when it came to technology, it had to be the something else was the design, right? How does it fit in your home? How does it fit in your life? Apple broke through using design, human-centered, person, individual-centered design. Now, their focus group of one was Steve Jobs, um, but they're a perfect example of Microsoft versus Apple, and look who is now leading, right? Just 18 years later, um, some say the largest, maybe not now, but very close to one of the largest companies in the world. And I attribute that to their success to why you have chief design officers nowadays. They think about more about the human experience and say, how are we going to design this to fit into people's lives, right? How are we going to create desire from nothing um, in this really inhumane technology? Um, they make it more human. All right. Well, this, we've had some great moments here. I, I really appreciate uh, your taking the time out of your day there at Fashion Week to talk to us. And um, how, how can the listeners reach you? Are you, you nicely offered to give a discount on your book. So uh, yeah. you want to tell us how, how to do that? Yeah, they can reach out uh, info at capsule.us, just info at capsule.us and find us that way. And they can get a, a discount on our book. Um, if they mention the podcast, obviously, uh, we'd love to hear those who have enjoyed this as well as, um, uh, set up a time to have a call and conversation with us. Um, we'd be happy to do that. So I think I offered a 50% discount uh, for anyone who does that on the book, The Physics of Brand. We'll ship it to you directly with a nice note. All right. Another moment. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, Aaron, thanks so much for, for coming on and you know reaffirming the importance of design. I, we appreciate yes. It. Thank you. Great conversation. Thanks. Take care. You're listening to We Are What We Buy. I'm Dr. Michael Solomon, and we'll be back in a moment with our next guest. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. 
Marketers, tear down these walls. Liberating the Postmodern Consumer by Dr. Michael Solomon is a revolutionary book that explores the psychology of the consumer in today's changing times. The book is packed with information and tools you need to create winning marketing strategies for a complex marketplace. Michael encourages readers to move out of the box, to think like contemporary consumers, and do things differently. This is a reader's favorite. Order today at Amazon.com. Book international speaker and renowned author Dr. Michael Solomon for your event today. Michael's presentations reveal cutting-edge trends in advertising and marketing, branding, consumer behavior, and social media. He captivates audiences with the insights he unveils during his interactive keynotes and seminars. Michael has spoken to Fortune 500 companies, top advertising agencies, associations, and branches of government on five continents, and has received rave reviews. Book Michael today at michaelsolomon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to We Are What We Buy. To reach Dr. Michael Solomon or his guest on today's program, please send an email to michael at michaelsolomon.com. Now back to We Are What We Buy. And we're back to... We are what we buy, and I'm Dr. Michael Solomon, and on this show, we've been talking about the challenge of building a brand identity and, and building a brand, whether it's a product or service, that, that people really want to wrap their arms around, and uh, my, my next guest is going to continue that conversation, but he's actually going to put the pedal to the metal because he's also a money guy, that is... He focuses on building brands and that actually make money for people. Imagine that. So um, I'm happy to welcome Nick Lepetsky to the show. And Nick is the Chief Marketing Officer of Amplify Capital. And uh, he describes himself as a marketer surrounded by finance guys. I love that. Hi, Nick. Hi, Michael. Thank you. Uh, let's let's jump right in. I, I know that uh, you know you've worked in your career with with a lot of different brands, uh, both products and services, and also both business to business brands and business to consumer brands. So um, I'd like to start by talking about a service. You know, branding a service actually presents its own unique challenges because you can't touch or feel a service. You can't pick it up in the grocery store and decide whether it's something you like. Uh, can you just start off, you know, tell us a little bit about the brand identity issues around a financial company. We had to figure out what uh, I call, I call it the aspirational destination, right? Um, you can call it the brand promise. What is it that the uh, customer is aspiring to become? And, and I think that's important to understand, like, what is it that they think they need? Because oftentimes, a customer, uh, when you're selling a service, they may think they want this or that, but it's not quite right. Um, that the the problem is is either deeper or something they can't quite articulate. Um, for instance, with lending, um, you know, LendingTree.com um, offers loans to you know, your general consumer and home loans where they started and they do auto loans and everything else now, but they had a, um, a, a more simple uh, approach or a, a, a simplified business model where they would offer um, uh, loans or, or rates, I should say, to uh, the, uh, the user that filled out the form on, the, on their website. And so at the time, and, uh, and they still have the brand promise of when banks compete, you win. Uh, so this, this brand promise um, worked really well for them because what it did is it, it gave the impression of control for the, the homeowner. And that's what was missing at the time. Um, a lot of what was going on is the uh, homeowners were you know, fixated on these interest rates that were dropping, and they felt like they had to deal with uh, one broker, mortgage broker after another that wasn't quite giving them what they needed. They wanted a lower rate or they, they wanted an easy uh, loan experience and they had to go through this process over and over again. They had to call a bank, go to a bank, 
uh, go through a loan process and so on and so forth. And it was a pretty arduous experience. And, and so what was, what LendingTree did is they came out and they offered this um, online experience, which allowed the, the, the homeowner to fill out the application on the website. Uh, most, most of us are familiar with this now as it's ubiquitous, but uh, that time that was relatively new for uh, online. And so you fill out your mortgage application and that application would be sent then to four different banks or lenders and brokers. And then they would call the homeowner and therefore flipping the, the process, flipping the table and, and giving the homeowner more control. So that was a brand promise uh, and it worked really well. The conversion rate of those uh, mortgage applications were very high. Uh, and uh, there was a really good likelihood that one of those four uh, banks or lenders would end up uh, refinancing that homeowner's uh, mortgage. So they knew all those metrics. Uh, the founder of LendingTree had a larger vision when, when he started LendingTree, and he wanted to uh, provide a much more curated experience for the homeowner. He wanted to make sure that they... Um, were uh, not taken care of, but they, that there was uh, an easier flow for them. So the vision was always, as I understood it, was to create the loan in-house and to, to manage the process all the way through instead of uh, sending them out to other banks and so forth. So uh, what LendingTree did is they bought a call center and they helped uh, manage that loan process in-house. Uh, but when they did that, uh, they saw those conversions rates fall through the floor. They weren't converting as well as if they sold those mortgages out to, into the market. Uh, and so one of the things that uh, we had to figure out at the time was why, why is it that our call center couldn't compete with uh, you know, the world at large when we, when we sold those, those, uh, those loans um, and those leads to uh, external banks and lenders. And what we discovered was the brand promise wasn't being delivered. The experience wasn't, wasn't being fulfilled as soon as they got to a person in the call center. So what was happening is this call center employee was used to competing with all these other banks and was used to having to sell each and every loan but that's not what the consumer was expecting. They were expecting somebody to help them, basically, um, uh, to navigate them through this process to help them understand which banks were uh, competing for their business. And so we had to retrain our entire call center to um, deliver that, that experience and to make our call center employees understand that they are not sitting across from the table. This is one of the metaphors we used in, in our training is that help them think as if they were sitting next to the homeowner uh, and explaining the process. Uh, so taking uh, this transactional, um, traditionally transactional mortgage process into one that was much more of a coaching process. Once we did that, that changed everything. And there's all sorts of other details here, but for make a long story short, what we did was uh, uh, increase that conversion rate just by making sure that our call center understood how um, they need to deliver on a brand promise when banks compete, you win. And um, we saw a drastic difference after that. And so from that, one of the things that I have understood about financial services or any, any B2B service in general is that once we understand the need for control or whatever that Pavlovian uh, response is for the, the, the buyer, uh, we just need to make sure that every, every moment in the experience leading up to that contributes to it. That it's not about the end result, it's about the experience and every moment in there, either online or offline. Uh, and so that's the other thing we need to consider is if we have a uh, online and offline experience, call it omnichannel, whatever you want, all those things need to work together. And we're getting pretty good at isolating the online experience or an offline experience, but now the consumer is walking back and forth between those two. And so we need to make sure that all of those are synchronized and, and they're always touching on that larger aspiration and making sure we're delivering on that brand promise. You know, Nick, when, when you were talking about your experience with LendingTree, uh, I, I extracted a couple of very important lessons there. Uh, one is you, you talk, you use a phrase that we use a lot in marketing and that is the brand promise. And I, and I think the moral that we can take from that or the learning we can take from that is that, uh, 
first of all, you've got to articulate what the brand promise is, but second and probably even more importantly, you've got to deliver on that brand promise or you you know, no matter whether it's a service or a or a product, B2B, B2C, that brand promise is really central. Mm-hmm. Um, and secondly, you talked about the notion that that brand promise has to be articulated through every touch point that we have with the customer. So it's not just the end product or service you deliver. It's, it's not only everything leading up to it, it's everything after it. So, uh, you know, I think that's a really, really important takeaway for anyone who wants to create and manage a brand identity. It's not just a one-off sort of thing. Yeah, it is important too. I mean, we we often like to just talk about these brand promises or create these brand strategies that maybe set that north star or whatever, create that that a brand identity that sits up on the mountaintop. But I think our job as marketers is it, is so much more. That's just the ten percent, right? The the rest, the ninety percent, is is what you're saying there. Is yeah, having to deliver on it. Yeah, making sure that we know how that is woven through everything the organization does and not just in messaging, but also in the delivery of a product or the formation of a product itself too. So if you're, you you know, this, this applies to consumer products as well. Yeah. And that's a, that's a great segue to, uh, to a product that I understand you're working on now. So let's, let's fast forward in your life about 10 years and, and get to the present, uh, can you take a minute to tell us about Pacha Soap and the brand identity challenges of creating a, a brand new physical product? Yeah, yeah. So Pacha Soap is a, um, a mission-based uh, business, mission-driven business. Uh, you'll find Pacha Soap at uh, Whole Foods and uh, many co-ops. You'll, it's the big pile of soap that smells amazing. Uh, it's on a table at the front of Whole Foods. Uh, and when uh, Pacha started, and even to this day, uh, a lot of other consumers aren't even aware of their brand. Uh, so this was a big challenge that Pacha had um, uh, when um, when we started working with them and overcome that quite a bit uh, with uh, uh, strengthening uh, their presence in store, uh, just with simple tactics like signage and fixtures and things like that. But um, one of the things that, um, you know, I, I worked with them on was the, the need for using their brand identity to influence their product development. And as a mission-based business, the, the founder, uh, his name is Andrew Verbus, um, he, he built the business uh, to support his mission. He, he travels to uh, Africa and South America, and he... Um, uh, helps uh, organizations there with uh, hand washing programs uh, and uh, with uh, soap production. So uh, anyway, so that's their mission. And the soap uh, helps them tell that story, but they, they need to, uh, um, they needed to, to do a better job of telling that story in store. Uh, and they uh, were concerned about uh, how they were going to continue to tell that story and provide impact as they scaled their business. So through their product development, they needed to make sure that when they launched a new product, that it had a direct line to this mission. So it would help them tell that story. But even more importantly, every product that they developed needed to actually deliver and provide more impact than they had before. So this is another really good lesson for anybody who as a consumer product that relies on retail distribution is the, the importance of that brand story uh, to the, the retailer. But what uh, buyers are becoming more and more attuned to are the uh, larger um, uh, stories that uh, go beyond uh, what it means for their bottom line. Yeah. So the brand story, the idea of the brand story is something we talk a lot about on this program. So it's, it's great to hear you say that. And, and just, you know, as, as a final question to you, you know, everyone who's listening to this program, whether they know it or not, has their own brand story, whether it's their personal brand or they manage, they own a store, manage a store, 
working for a, for a, a product or service. So as also a money guy, can you just give us some quick parting advice? What is the single most important thing to consider for someone who is focused on building a brand and wants to make some money at the end of the day? <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So when building a brand, uh, I think the most important thing to do is understand that an investment in the product and in everything that supports the product or service, that needs to get rock solid before you start leaning heavily into uh, more awareness. Because you know, I see this mistake happen quite a bit where companies want to jump ahead and tell the world about what they are and what they're doing or jump into a retail channel that's really big. Like maybe they want to jump in and get into Target or something like that. And more small companies have died because of that uh, because they haven't figured out the back end first. So that's probably the best advice that I can give to any aspiring or scaling small businesses to make sure that you have the, uh, the business model figured out and that you know how that thing's going to scale before you start pouring gasoline on the fire and fueling it. Yeah. Uh, Nick, I really appreciate uh, you coming on the show and sharing these insights and, and uh, showing us really how they apply to everything, you know, whether, whether you're taking out a mortgage or you're shopping for some really aromatic soap, it's at the end of the day, it's still, it's still about a promise. So uh, a promise is not only good for marketing, it's also good for the guys who wear the green eye shades because that's what, <laughs> that's what returns the, uh, the revenue, right? Yeah, they're going to they're gonna watch that closely. Well, we're done for this week where we've been focusing on the importance of the brand promise. And I can promise you that next week we'll have another show with three more experts and we're going to dive into another really fascinating topic. So I hope you'll join me then. And in the meantime, please email me at michael at michaelsolomon.com or contact me on Twitter at Mike Solo. And remember, we buy what we are and we are what we buy. See you next week. Thank you for listening to We Are What We Buy. Please join your host, Dr. Michael Solomon, again next Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, have a winning week.